How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 195. Holy... That literally only just hit me when you said it then. How unbelievably close we are to a brand new milestone. I know. I know. Five weeks. I was going to make a joke, because you made me make a, a funny noise as you introduced us to the podcast. And now, now I'm going to have to like make sure that you can't hear my funny noise. <laughs> but then you said 195, and I was like, oh my god, we're at 195. It's wild, isn't it, to think about? like Never missed a week. Never missed a week of this show. <laughs> I'm just doing some quick math. 9, 6, 9, quick 7, math. 9, 8, 9, 9. Man, you, you pulled out a gigantic calculator so... out of your pocket, Zeke. <laughs> You're such a nerd. The... To my calculation, folks, just his phone. The two hundredth episode will fall on the week that I turn twenty-five. Oh, there you go. Yeah. What what week did I turn twenty-five? What was the week of the tenth of June? I'm actually going to figure this out. You pulled out your calculator. I'm going to pull out my mad four K thirty-two inch monitor with Spotify. It's so big, Zeke. Look out. Yeah, so we are scheduled to do it on the 14th of November. will be episode 200. Oh, and I'm obviously 25 on the 18th. That's November. excellent. My 25th fell right smack bang in the middle between our Planet of the Apes podcast and our North by Northwest podcast. Too, too good uh, in the middle of the countdown through the decade. Yeah, well, I, I guess every year since we've done them, yeah. my birthday always lands right in the countdown. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just how... That's just how the world revolves around the sun. That's just how it works. Yes. The world revolves around the sun. Australia gets very hot in January. Mm-hmm. And Jake's birthday always lands on a Countdown Through the Decades episode. Well, that's our 40th Director's Corner we're talking about. Mm. We're actually into our 39th Director's Corner. Oh, of course. With John Carpenter and his film, The Thing. Jake, do you have any relevant tri- trivia to our film of the week? I do. Relevant to the film, of course. Very excited to talk about this because I've never seen it before. Nice. I've, got some, I've got some claims I want to make about this film. But one particularly cool behind-the-scenes fact I read is that about 15 minutes in, when we're following the dog that's sort of wandering around the hallways, and then the dog clocks the corner and we see the shadow of one of the crew against the door and sort of reacts to the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, John Carpenter has actually said that that mysterious figure is played by none of the main actors as to keep the identity of the crew member a secret, which I think is really cool, considering the the themes of the film, so to speak. (laughs) Well, speaking about John Carpenter, I think Mm. I went for a simple one, but sort of a testament to his love as a filmmaker and his way of um, tackling sort of praise and criticism. Um, This was actually John Carpenter has stated this was his personal favourite of the films he's directed. Mm. But then not only that, you know, he takes um, all of his failed movies pretty hard, but the initial negative reception around this particular film disappointed disappointed him the most. Not only was this film a box office bomb, but critics panned it for its gory effects, tone, and characters. So we're going to dive into sort of the intricacies of this film in the second half of the show. But Jake... Blasphemy. I'm going to straight say it. It's going to be on the poster. <laughs> it's on the poster. Yeah. And it absolutely should be yeah. on the poster. For 1100 films, you must watch at least once in your lifetime. This film must be watched yeah. by everyone. My mum 
probably would agree with those credits, uh, those critics, though, because she found it very gross. It's a gross film. But what does the grossness say about humanity? We'll find out later on the show. Zeke, have you been watching anything in this past week? Uh, yeah, look, I, I can't say I've, I've watched a terrible amount. I was finishing my GTPA in the last week, which sure. i done and submitted. Career updates. Yes, yeah, <laughs> not to, um, almost out in the teaching world. but um, Almost out I there. Haven't really caught too much. Um, been continuing watching the FX show Welcome to Wrexham, which I've talked nice. about with Rob McWenny and Ryan Reynolds, and it's it's getting good. And it's I'm starting to have you know mutual friends of the show uh, watching the show too. Oh, you got is, them onto it, which is pretty great. Beautiful. Um, just continue to go along with the the Netflix series The Last Dance, which I've, I talked about last week on the show, centering around the the five time champion Chicago Bulls team and sort mm. of how that all fell apart. Um, but yeah, not an excessive amount, to be honest. What about very, you? Very sportsy montage of yes, I'm in a sports and... <laughs> mood. <laughs> no, it's good. It's trade period in the AFL. Yeah, exactly. No, you 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 go and enjoy it. I've been sort of in all sorts of different puddles. Um, I actually don't know where to start. I, I I'll start with the horror film that I saw because because I would say two out of three of the things I'm going to talk about. I've sort of got these um tangential rants I want to go on about um, you know the thing that the that the that I guess the content is related to I hate calling movies and show content but I will do it in this case mm-hmm. I saw Smile the horror film okay. Smile Parker Fing's directorial feature directorial debut I should say he's done some shorts um, look the film's okay it's fine look it's it's fun it's silly um for those who don't know what it is, it, it's it's got the very gimmicky, uh, yeah, gimmicky pres. Uh, oh my god, I can't even speak. Gimmicky um, premise, premise is the word I'm looking for, mm. um, which we've seen in trailers, and I know they've been doing marketing with people like smiling in the background of like game shows and uh, sports shows and all of that stuff. Um, but it follows this psych who has sort of uncovered this chain of suicides all related to this creepy smile that people have been doing and it's almost sort of treated like this curse that's put on to people and look it's it's dumb horror it's well made there's some interesting camera angles mm-hmm. the sound design is pretty cool it really gets experimental and kind of eerie not not so much like the snapping strings effect but sort of something a little bit different to that but just as uncomfortable which i i really liked and there are some there are some good scenes in there i think the film peaks there's a birthday party scene, like a seven-year-old's birthday party. It uh, that's a great scene, right? Because it totally, it uh, yeah, it's hard because there's a couple of things I would like to mention, but they're a bit spoilery. I won't spoil the film for people. Mm-hmm. All I would say is that it is very clearly an analog for you know PTSD and trauma and society sort of the the, the how inequipped society is to handle mental illness like altogether and. It, it becomes very um, not subtle about it at the end, which I think is a real key difference between older horror films and newer horror films, and we're obviously going to get into that with John Carpenter later. But I, I thought it was weird with that being said and the fact that this horror film is so clearly about this analogue that it ends the way it ends, where part of this premise is appealing to young, dumb teens that just want to go to a movie and be scared, and we're going to get into that, because, Zeke, mm-hmm. this screening of Samar might have been the worst screening of any movie I've ever been ever. to. Ever. Ever. 
ever. In, in your 25 years of this earth. <laughs> on this earth, yes. Please and even, tell me. And even those two years I took on Mars, uh, I never told anyone until now, Zeke. Um, <laughs> the Mars cinemas are pretty bad, but not as bad as this earth cinema, I'm telling you. Um, because the, the film is sort of gearing towards that commentary on trauma and how people deal with yeah. trauma and how we should all sort of collectively, you know, I guess come together to share experiences and to empathize with each other. And the film was sort of leaning towards that with sort of a Babadook-esque ending. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, plot twist, dumb horror film ending of, oh, they want to pump more sequels out of this. <laughs> okay. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, that really kind of drove me nuts. I still gave the film, like, a free star. Like, it, it's okay. It's okay. But it's clearly appealing to these dumb teens. Now, let me set the scene for you, Zeke. Okay. Me and Blake, we weren't going to go and watch Smile. We wanted to see, how am I forgetting what it's called? See how they run. Yep. The, the Who Done It. Yeah. yeah. Fun. That well, looks fun. Yeah, exactly. Cersei Ronan and um, Sam Brockwell. Like, yeah, good cast. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Prep, prep us for Knives Out 2. We go, uh, pretty much all the screenings from each Hoyts, uh, anywhere between 6.20 and 6.40 p.m. And we're sort of running late. So it's like, all right, let's go to Garden City. Like, the, the, the seats are crap. It hasn't been renovated in ever. But, yeah, it's Garden City. I don't know City. why. Garden hasn't City been... is home, yep. you know? And 6.40, it gives us a little extra time to do it. I forgot about the social economical aspect of it, where the kinds of people who go to Garden City, which is yep. probably the most generic cinema you can go to, the most mainstream teenagers. one. A lot of teenagers. Um, we got warned by the usher when we asked to go see, um, you know, this film, see how they run. That there are a bunch of teenagers who were not old enough to see Smile. They couldn't present their IDs. So they're now in this film. And they're, they're actively trying to find a reason to kick them out. Before the movie's even started. So me and Blake are like, okay. Alright, let's let's deal with this. <laughs> we sit down. Our seats are, of course, the second to last row. They're all, like, I swear to God, 15 kids all across the last row. Immediately, within 50 seconds... We already have them joking about accidentally, quote-unquote, kicking us in the back of the head because their feet are up on the chairs. And then the kid on the other side is already complaining about being kicked out of the MA movie. Within 50 seconds, we just leave. And we're like, nah, let's watch something else. This is not going to work out. So we get tickets to Smile. My thinking is, well, at least with Smile, they are legally not allowed to (laughs) enter this cinema. So that gives us one extra barrier of safety. From these kids, I reckon at least half of them got in at some point. I've been comparing cinemas to train stations lately because people just walk in and out and in and out and in and out. No one watches the movie anymore. Not only is that happening, and it's all at the front row, so they're relatively like low volume just because of how far away we are from them. But they're jumping on the seats, they're playing musical chairs. There's obviously like you know these kids are all like want to sit next to each other, so they keep changing seats and people are loudly walking in and out. Not only that, but the people behind us, the people in front of us, they're all talking. They don't care about the movie. I, I think I told at least two sets of couples to shut up within the first five minutes, which is like, okay, I'm keeping calm. I'm going to, like you did it, nope. going to set the present right early Yep. to shut these people up. About half It worked the f- in nope. It worked in nope, and it kind of worked here because those people I told to shut up did shut up. But there were people sort of halfway down the row of seats I don't know who decided to take four flash screen like photo- photos of the cinema. That just a random scene. Clearly wanted to put in on the Snapchat. Oh, I'm I'm seeing smile. Oh, that photo's not good. Let me take another flash photo. Oh, that's not good. Let me try again. 
after the third one, I, I made a mental note in my head of like, I'm literally just going to scream at this person if a fourth one happens. Clink, fourth one happens. I don't think I've ever done this before in the cinema. Without flinching, without getting off my seat, I just yelled some loud profanity at this person to shut their phone off or to t- stop taking flash photography. To the point where the annoying guy behind me that's also been talking throughout this movie says, yeah, truth, bruh, truth. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like about to turn around and be like, you're next, motherfucker. <laughs> and then, of course, by the end of the movie, the kids at the front are all got their flashes on as well because they're trying to outdo each other of who can be more annoying. And it just, like... Dude, it so was, these ushers really weren't doing anything. The one time an usher walked in was right at the end, and I swear to God, the whole cinema, like, took notice, even though these kids were in front of the entrance... So they would have had to be looking behind them to notice someone there. They all just like flipped on a switch, turned off their flashes, stopped jumping, stopped moving. They knew what they were doing. I'm not going to lie. If I was subject to the experience you were subject to, yeah, I would actually ask for my money back. Yeah. I would legitimately. I really we made it obvious I'd to them. Go, like, you guys, like this is. Uh, I'd go full Karen. I'd go, I demand my money back because what you're paying for with a cinema is a cinematic experience. Now, yeah. A shared experience, but nevertheless, but there's, a, there's an etiquette to yeah, it. Yeah, but the, and by shared, but I would say it's a shared experience until the lights get dimmed, and then you're you're only sharing the experience by reacting to the piece in front of you. When you're doing things like taking a photo or talking, you're disengaged from the experience. Yeah, you're having an isolated thing, but you're actually affecting other people Everyone around else, from yeah. their experience. So. It's the equivalent of being, like, on an amusement park ride, which mm. you're paying for that experience. Yep. And some kids janking on their um, their buckles yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like, they're actually... They're hindering in that case, your experience. They're hindering yeah. your experience. They're endangering the safety. But, mm. it's, you know, maybe that's an extreme example. But sure. the reality is, when you're paying for that service... Yeah. That which is, is an expensive service However, nowadays. And yeah. it's a problem, because yeah, particularly at that cinema you're talking yeah. about the garden city cinema they seem to be sufficiently short-staffed like yeah and they're they, all like maybe 16 years old they're all probably scared to confront so these people you're as well. asking yeah exactly so you're asking mm. like these underage kids to basically take a managerial stance yeah. and have a sense of authority about them and it's pretty easy to do because of their, you know, they're making a public disturbance to mm. an extent. I'm sure in a shopping center extent, they probably could call security. Yeah. Um. But it's one of those things that this wasn't a problem 15 years ago, yeah. 10 years ago. Like I said, more people were checking in more often. And what's disappointing is that we always expect teenagers to have poor behavior. Sure. And when it comes to a cinema, like they're always, you know, even in eighties movies, they're always talking about how they're the one, but I get increasingly disappointed when I see people older than me. Yeah. Acting that yes. way. That drives me like, nuts too. When I've gone to Luna and I've seen like a 50 year old woman or a 50 year old man on their phone and it's bright as sunlight. Yeah. Cause I can't see the screen. I go, mate, you were around when phones didn't exist and you went to a cinema. <laughs> how do I have to tell you off? For this, why am uh, I having to tell yeah, you off? For no, this it's exactly level yeah. of behavior, and uh, and you know, it's we're blessed. A lot of our friends are very. All of our friends are really good with cinema etiquette. But yeah, we've also been with people that you know 
that didn't have very good etiquette sure, and it peeved yeah. us off at the time. I think in that particular that's such an extreme example. Yeah, um, that might literally be the worst example. I think I that's the worst of. I've ever heard. That yeah. would be an instance where I would actually go and just go, no. I didn't... Yeah. I pay, especially with the increasing prices of yeah. tickets, when you're paying $17, $18, $19, that's not what you're paying for. And that he can sit there and give that warning to the cows come home, that he or she, that usher. Yeah, yeah. But if they're not going to enforce it, then you go, okay, well, I'm paying for your service as an yeah. usher. Because your usher, your job doesn't just finish. Your job That's encompass- a really good point. Like, part of their job is to, you know, not only, pol- I wouldn't call it policing, but to, to keep the experience that you're paying for, which is a respectful audience to watch the film, to turn the phones off, which they've got a million bloody messages before the movie starts to do those things. If they're not enforcing and... and uh, what's the word? Like, enforcing that experience yeah. by kicking people out who are breaking those rules, then what are we paying for, really? Yeah. Are we paying for them to what, print, a, print a, click a button on a screen, print a <laughs> ticket, and then give us some popcorn that's already been pre-packaged? Yeah. And make sure the hard drive doesn't fall like, out of the... Oh, at the end of... Okay, well, they're also getting paid to clean up the cinema. Yeah, they are, but then what are they doing when the two hours in between the start and the end of the movie? Yeah. Like, I know they can't be there all the time, and I'm, and especially when it comes to staffing, that's very difficult. But you can't tell me if you're saying, oh, we're looking for any excuse to kick them out, how did they survive the two hours? Then? Yeah, no, I'm convinced that a good majority of those kids were the ones that they just snuck in. Probably. And the and- fact that they were all at the front tells me that they didn't want to, like, get caught taking someone else's seat or... Which is interesting, because she said that the usher literally said, like, oh, it, we don't care about the seating. Like, she would print out a ticket that says we need to sit one row in front of them. But then be like, oh, but you can really sit wherever you want. It doesn't matter. Cinemas are weird, aren't they? Because they're basically just adolescent babysitters, aren't they? They really are. <laughs> like, and that's pretty much what they are. They're basically like, it's just a bunch of parents going, all right, take, cinema's taking the responsibility for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is as well is like, yeah, we talk about teens in this general sense of, oh, all teens are, are dumbasses. And I'm, I'm here thinking like, I swear to God, I was never, ever, ever anywhere remotely this bad when I was always to some level respectful in the cinema. And I think part of this is, and this is where my like tangential rant's going to go on, is that I generally am concerned about the memification of cinema. And what I mean is movies like Morbius and Minions, where the internet has just decided to make it a gigantic meme. And like, oh, we're going to make TikToks of people going to the movie in suits and screaming and ruining the experience for everyone else. Or we're going to meme Sony into re-releasing Morbius and pretend like we're actually going to go and watch it. And I'm, this, honestly, this behavior really bothers me because I do sort of find the the movie going experience sacred. And I want it to be sacred. That's why I like going to the bougie ones to avoid these people. And I feel like, I don't think Smile is in this memification category like Morbius is, but it's definitely a film that that is promoted as a gimmick mm-hmm. to kids that just want to be scared. And that was another thing we had in this theater was people pretending to be scared when they were not, which is what happened in your Nope screening. People pretending to be scared before anything scary happened because that, oh, it's a scary movie, so I'm allowed to scream and claim yeah, that, that that's my that, authentic reaction. It's that metacognition. It's that yeah. self-awareness of being like, 
oh, I'm in a horror movie. I'm I'm watching the thing. I'm gonna jump before anything's worth jumping yeah. at. Like yeah. And oh, it, it's childish as hell. Yeah, and it, I agree with it. And I actually reckon that that extends long past. It, you know, it starts with adolescence, but mm. it has it has a knock on effect to our generation and generations after this overacting, this oh, mm. like pretending being being, being uh, a character, being overly immersed yeah. in something, but you're not actually immersed at all in it. Like this 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 facade of immersion, but. Yeah, and it's, it's a performance. That's what it, it is. is. Yeah, it is, and it, I think it's just—it's like everything. It's when you see like TikToks or reels of people like going into cinemas and reacting to things, and mm. or or doing the the minions thing, where basically, yeah, you they see that and go, oh well, they're doing it. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to bring yeah. ten of my friends along to minions, and we're all going to act the same way. Yeah. Cause, and it's convincing people and kids especially to not not you know we need to treat film sacredly it's like that's that's a selfish thing that i do sure but it goes back to the cinema etiquette of you're not allowed to act like an idiot in the cinema because you watch everything wrong with harry potter videos on youtube and think it's okay to just nitpick the shit out of everything and make yourself a tiktok yeah. character so you get attention like Stop that! Yeah, <laughs> please. And also, you you wouldn't go into a library screaming like a headless chook. You know, it's uh, every location has a certain etiquette and expectation, and yep. most of the time we don't even think about those principles or the way we're supposed to act in those situations because it's subconscious. We just know that. We yeah, just know how to act. We know but... to be quiet in the library. You know not to pull out your phone in the theater, and a lot but, of people just don't give a shit or and, think they can get away with it. And, and unfortunately, it's a mixture of. It's a mixture of the reels and then this this surgence of binge and streaming culture where people are so comfortable sitting in their own homes mm. and talking through things that they don't actually get to go to the cinema as much as, as they'd like. So they don't have that preconceived expectation of um, behavior. Yeah. And, you know, it, and then you get these big groups. Like I said, it's a case of in this situation, it's parents just putting their kids in a place and... These kids, all they really want to do is talk and chat with each other. They don't really care about the movie, yeah. but they're being pushed into this location. So it's like, because it's better than them loitering around the shopping center, mm. disrupting all the shops. And whereas they can sit quietly for two and a half hours in this in this cinema, yeah. where, like you said, children that aren't too much older or very young adults mm. are there. They're basically their, their duty yeah. of care people. <laughs> and they're not going to enforce it because, yeah, they're young people and they're afraid of backlash or confrontation. We're trying and to tell 15 people you're being, and you're 17, yeah. is, is intimidating. It, yeah, it's uh, it just it drives me nuts because you made a really, really good point that I didn't even think about is that I feel like a part of an usher and theatre runner's job is to enforce the experience. Yeah, to punish those that are breaking the rules that are clearly established by them. It is. And I used to think that there was always a presence of ushers when I was watching movies growing mm. up, whereas... Oh, it, it, there definitely was. And I, I think, admittedly, I think, uh, you know, you brought up the nope scenario and it's like, yeah, I checked those kids' attitude very quickly. Yeah. But then there was an usher presence. There was a twice the usher popped in during the movie. Right. Just to sort of reinforce in earlier stages of the movie, just to rein- reinforce that, yeah, that it wasn't just me; it was that presence there. And 
But that's a rare thing. Mm. I mean, that I don't see that too often. Never see it at Luna, but you don't really expect that behavior at Luna. Well, so, well, Luna, and I, 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 you know, I don't have any trade secrets or work there. I don't know any of this, but they very clearly have a monitor. When when you get the tickets and you look to your left, they have a monitor. They have cameras in all eight cinemas. Yeah, and you can see it. They could just sit right there and watch. So I think for Luna, they don't have to do that because, A, the cinemas are a lot smaller. Yeah, it's true. So they have a better idea of how many people are in each cinema. Generally, it's one or two people sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but also, they can see it through the security cameras, and I I imagine Hoyts doesn't really have that. No. At least you could look through the, the projector peephole, I guess. I think it, it's, <laughs> it's really disappointing that we have to have these sort of extensive conversations, but... You know, it's like that. It's like, why am I paying $20 for a ticket if yeah. that's the experience I'm subjected to? Like, I'm sorry, but in that particular instance, I'm asking for my money back because I didn't... I paid for an experience that I actually didn't get. Yeah. Because I was unable to get that because the people that worked here were unable to do their job yeah. and hold people accountable because... Oh, it that's really a really should, good way to look at it. Yeah. In the extreme... I mean, the fact that you get to the point where you're telling you're having to shout profanities because you're basically trying to poke holes uh, block up the holes in a a breaching dam yeah and it's just chaos you feel like you've basically paid twenty dollars to sit in a in a childcare center and just yell yell at kids like think about that (laughs) what's the difference between that and a childcare center yeah (laughs) like oh it's sad and you're not you're not getting anything out of the, the movie that you're watching because no. you're unable to really sit down and, and give it a fair... And that's the sad part, is we intentionally picked a horror film knowing full well that that's the one they're trying to sneak into. There's still, there was still a chance that we're going to annoy the crap out of us. But the fact that because it's a horror film, we can sort of let louder audience participation slide when people are sort of, you know, jumping at something that's mm-hmm. scary. There are a lot of jump scares in this movie that are, you know, very dumb, but whatever. Um, but then there's people sort of laughing of disbelief because that's how they cope with being scared. Like there's there's those things that you can kind of let slide a little more, which is not the way I should be thinking about. It. I should be thinking about it the way you are, which is if this experience isn't you know nurtured the way it should be by the ushers that whose job it is to do that, then I want my money back or I'm leaving. Yeah. So I'm glad I didn't care too much about Smile. Uh, but what if, if it was it, a film that you really? If cared this was about. like the Tintin sequel and this was happening. There would be more blood. This would be a John Carpenter level of blood in the cinema. <laughs> I don't think it's... Uh, yeah, it's disappointing. But this is the world we live in now. It's like, you know, as a media teacher, it's mm. it's very hard to sell them on film as art sometimes. Oh, my God, I can imagine. And, yeah. and you have to... You know, it's really important that as a media teacher, you're always evolving your craft, but they still need to appreciate a fundamental. Mm. And a fundamental of media studies is film yeah. and documentary and i love expanding to things like teaching people about uh, teaching students about podcasting and yep. these these more new world 21st century mediums that have come in, in the last 20 years social media even social media advertising these these other elements that do exist yeah of video and production to teach and them, media yeah absolutely but the reality is it's like you know i wouldn't go to an art gallery and scream and take flash photography and all this stuff. So why why are me why does always the cinema be the one bear the brunt of mm. of that crudeness that yep. just doesn't exist in in other forms of literature? 
Yeah. Like all I think showcases it, of literature. It's because it is one of the only ones that is reliant on that shared experience. And that can be a great thing in a cinema. It can be a bad thing. I know, like, you know, we talked about a Jojo Rabbit screening and, like, people were almost too enthusiastic about the film that it, it ruined the experience for some. Agreed. But Me. you compare it to <laughs> well, you compare it to a book or even a game to a lesser extent. Or a game can be a community experience because it's more interactive. And if you're playing competitively, there's less of a story. Sure to engross in I think these other mediums can sort of get away with because they're either more privatized in the sense that it is a more solo experience or they are overly reliant on the shared experience where you don't need to pay attention to dialogue or story or character and I think especially the fear to go and experience now that it's just so tainted frankly with kids who are growing up into communities of kids that don't want to care about anything that are overly nihilistic and seeing film critique as just overly nitpicky bullshit they just can't respect the film and the yeah. film-going experience anymore. And that's why when I see people dress up in suits to go see Minions, I don't find that funny. I just I find that incredibly frustrating because we are losing that sense of sacredness and respect for the cinema-going experience. And you're only going to hear me say this on our cinema podcast. Yeah. I know, you know what I, I mean? Think, but I think it's important to have those, those moments. And it's such a shame mm. that, you know, we have to talk about that stuff because it's... To me, it didn't feel like a problem mm. 10, 15 years ago when I was a teenager. I felt I like felt- people were more aligned against the, the, the wrongdoers. You know, there would be the one guy on his phone and the rest of the theatre were like, you know, shush him into submission. And now it feels like it's a whole group of people that have their own, you know, sense of yeah. etiquette and what's crossing the line and, and what's not. My, my thing has always been... Um, uh, and it's like basically the way I carried myself with Nope. Yeah, it's totally fine to be chatting all the way through the trailers, but as soon as the lights dim, mm. it's like that's it. It's you are now in a different room, in a different experience. And as soon as it's like when that monkey came up and there was that comment, <laughs> yeah, and it was just like now nah, we're we're nipping nah. that in the bud. That's it. It's time straight to shut away. Up. Yep. Um, Did I tell you when I when me and Mel. This is way back on the pop. We did the Lion King episode, so way back season the original one. stale popcorn winner. Yeah, I know the, the OG. Um, that night, I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time ever at I think it was Inaloo. I think yeah. it was Inaloo with Mel, and I got yelled at for talking during the commercials. I was I was shocked because it was a trailer for It Chapter Two, mm. which is readily available on the internet. Yeah. Okay, and. Also, the lights are on. Everyone else is talking. She turned to me and basically said, like, can you please stop talking? I'm trying to watch this. For for the trailer. I was like, come on. Super. Come it's, on. It's, you know, I give... <laughs> That's I, I didn't pay $20 for the trailers. I paid yeah. $20 for the film. It's like she so, let... As soon as the movie starts, she leaves. <laughs> yeah. That's all so, she wanted out of the And the everyone experience. here should be in the same mind as me like that. So when the lights go out... It's straight away. It's like that. And it's like, you know, when that nope situation, mm. telling him to be quiet. And then like the guy in front of me goes, oh, thanks for that. It's like, I'm not looking for like this. Oh, look at me. I'm a big boss man. Yeah. Appraisal. I just want everyone to be quiet. And yeah. I shouldn't have to. T- I wish I would never have to tell people that. I wish it would. Ev- they would all go, oh, shh, the movie's starting. Yeah. But they don't anymore. No. They try and they want to test, unfortunately... It's that everything. And all teenagers do it, but it's just change the way it's changed. They always want to test where the boundary is. And if the boundaries, you know. 
I'm just thinking about the guy that when I screamed at the other dude, he just said, truth. Oh, my God. Okay, we're going to stop talking about this because it's going on. Speaking of memification, I watched Eat the Rich, the GameStop saga on Netflix. I watched the first episode. Oh, okay. Cool. It... It's very meme-tastic, isn't it? It's like... Very um, fast whip editing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's uh, very much... Um, what's the guy I did? Vice. Oh, Adam McKay. Adam McKay. It's got that McKay sort of, like, catering and, for the and, ADHD and, community <laughs> level editing. Yeah, look, I was kind of bothered by it as well. I get it because it's trying to sort of show that the hypocrisy... Not the hypocrisy, but, like, the, the weird combination of the internet's carelessness about everything but also it's incredibly powerful ability to manipulate things including the stock market which i wouldn't call manipulation for those who don't know this covers the um the story of like the reddit group that basically um did a short squeeze i didn't know that's what was called a short Mm -hmm. squeeze Squeeze, on um on brokers who's tried to short GameStop and basically raise the price from like what two dollars to five hundred dollars they're trying to have that nuance of oh well these guys basically take out dying ships and they make money off of of these ships that are going down and basically the whole internet reddit community was like no nah, we're not we're not letting you yeah financially benefit from this and to your point the way they portray where it's like the bubble was about to burst and it cuts to a balloon popping or yeah. you know the letter was coming and then a drone carries a letter on a fi- yeah like very like obvious one-to-one meme representation and visuals um, but I get it because of the story. Like, it, it kind of makes sense for how they're trying yeah, to comment I, on that. Yeah, I, I didn't feel like it was... Sometimes I was a little bit like, okay, this really feels like it's drawing itself out a bit. And I'm not sure how many, how many episodes... There's three. There's three episodes. So it's... It's, okay, it's so a nice little Woodstock three-act 99, structure. So it's very much a three-hour... Okay, so it's not hectic. Because um, I got through... Even one episode, and I was like, wow, this is taking a while. Like, I just feel like okay. it's... Okay. I thought, I thought it was very fleeting. I think because okay. I was just so into because I was I remember this so well when it all was happening. Trying to understand how it happened. Well, it's one of those things where, uh, not having been in it in the first like five minutes of the short squeeze, it's like well I can't I can't touch it now. At this point, it's too dangerous. You kind of had to be in it well before the the stock price went up to really because some people made a shit ton of money i'm talking people that are trying to pay off mortgages and mm-hmm. you know have free kids and and the docker shows a little bit of that most of the subjects they found were people who kind of got in but then didn't jump when the ship sank so they made no money from it so it was odd because like you have lots of great people you could have interviewed that made a shit ton of money from this and even one of the letterbox comments that i saw was someone being like i paid a month's rent because of this because I jumped on this ship, I thought it would be funny to invest in GameStop, and then made all this money, and you know, paid all this mm. rent off, and I, I feel like I didn't quite get enough of those characters, but I also figured showed off the hypocrisy. You were seeing in the next two episodes, um, the hypocrisy of how you know the government and these stockbrokers is trying to b- blame the internet for stock manipulation, when it's also like, well, Robinhood also deleted the buy button, so. <laughs> If that's not stock manipulation, I don't know what the hell is. Um, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it was a bit short and kind of fleeting, but mm-hmm. yeah, it okay. is what it is. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll like for you to watch the rest. Yeah, of it. I, I, I'm gonna finish it because I like these three episode sort of quick, quick sure. watches. And I wish stuff. it was a movie, but whatever. 
Yeah, fine. it's like everything though. It's like when you're at three hours, it's like could you not cut this down to a two and and well, give us it's, a documentary? It probably movie? is more like a two. It probably is more two hours because it's like forty five to fifty minutes. Okay, yeah. So so yeah, I, and I do think sometimes that they go for like they cut to like the I think maybe I'm potentially up to the second episode okay. where they cut to like the rapper and his two friends and they just do a rap about oh yeah that's how they open episode two okay so I have you, uh, you get a little of that where you're, you're right it's like they wouldn't have used that if they could it, it couldn't be like a fun teaser into episode number two yeah they could have like trimmed some of that obviously you take the credits out of two of the three episodes yeah so there's ways to bring it down to an hour and a half and I you might as well just like it must be it must be a Netflix thing. Yeah, they must just make that little extra bit of cash by just spreading out across an episodic Absolutely. release. But I don't, I don't know how it goes. The last thing I watched was Life After Pi. Now you not you do not need to watch Life of Pi to understand Life After Pi, the 2014. It's a Is thirty it a movie. Uh, sure, it's a thirty minute documentary. Oh, documentary about the VFX crew. So it was actually all the VFX was done by Rhyme and Hugh Studios, who I think date back to the eighties. They were like pioneers in the animation and VFX field, and um, I think were known for their speciality in making animals sort of come to life and and making them look realistic. Which I mean, they did like Mouse Hunt and and um, Babe and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they were picked to do Life of Pi, and. The sort of the pitch that they use for this doco is a sort of this alarm bell for the the VFX crisis, which is only still continuing and re-emerging to this day with all the Marvel stuff that's come out about the squeeze there. This documentary really goes into how and why the systemic, um, I was going to say systemic system, <laughs> bit of a double entendre there, but how like sort of the the systemic flow of how this operation works, how VFX artists get into the industry and, and work on these films, they're pretty much just getting squeezed until they get bankrupt. And the whole thing is that this company went bankrupt the same month that they won the Oscar for this film. Wild. And it's it's so wild, but then when you learn about and that's what the doco goes into, is the whole process of how it all works, where studios are trying to obviously find the cheapest state to to employ these people. So they're pretty much just chasing after whichever state has the best tax um, offset. Or mm-hmm. tax benefit, I suppose. So you have not only VFX artists who mostly work on you know year-long contracts and have to find their own work, but you're talking about entire VFX houses with you know labs of computer systems and buildings and and all of this housing to do their work are jumping from state to state every single year just so they can get the work. And then on top of that, they get a flat rate, which is unlike any other aspect of the film industry because you're on set, you're just bleeding through money constantly because everyone's going into double time and triple time and you're spending you know, probably well over a million dollars a day on set. So all the decision makers need to be there and it all needs to be this very well-oiled machine so there's no money being leaked out. Except for VFX, where they just get one flat rate. It's like, all right, 500 shots, uh, $12 million. Here you go. And the VFX company are completely uh, in charge of employing everyone and making those 500 shots come in completed. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if the director or the studio change their vision, bring the date forward or back, which obviously affects how long their contract's going to be. So if they're on a $12 million deal and all of a sudden the film's delayed three months, that's three months' work of worth of dozens and dozens of employees that they now have to pay out of pocket. Because the studio is not going to do it, and it's just like this weird systemic thing of that is still to this day not being addressed. Needs to be addressed, yeah. It's just insane. 
The latest video, and there's a lot of videos out there right now, is from the Royal Ocean Film Society's YouTube channel. It's called The Visual Effects Crisis, or The Visual... Yeah, Visual Effects Crisis, sorry. Um, it's excellent. And that that's what led me on to the life after Pytoko, which is nearly 10 years old. And this is still a gigantic problem in the industry. And someone mentioned, I think it actually was him, the Royal Ocean Film Society guy, who said that probably the best solution for this is to give them um, royalty payments linked to the box office of the film. Because you think about it, and he made the point of, I think, in tw- or this was in the docker in 2014, 49 of the 50th highest grossing films all were visual effects heavy and had protagonists that were animated characters. So, in a way, much like Tom Holland's a draw, people are going to watch a film because Tom Holland's in it, a lot of people are going to watch Marvel films because of the special yeah. effects. That's all they're going to... They want to watch to see the explosions and, and, and the action scenes. you're giving scenes. like 1% or 2%. Exactly. That's, that's significant. That's substantial amounts of 2% money. to the VFX company, and then they have a clause where it passes on to their contractors. They would all make... They would make so much money. Yeah. A ridiculous amount of money. And they wouldn't have to go into this unionization thing, which they should still be unionized. But if the studios are so scared of it, then give them a cut of the box office. That makes perfect sense to me. Anyway, um, this is a whole rabbit hole we can go yeah, into at some point. We've had a lot of heavy topics already on the show. I know, it's crazy. We're almost but all related in. to cinema. They are all indeed related to cinema, but those are the things I watch. It's also free. So Life After Pie is free on YouTube. Definitely watch it. It is very insightful, very interesting, and very upsetting because the film ends with them all losing their jobs, not getting compensated. Mm. And then when they actually, you know, when the crew won the Oscar, they of course go to do their speech. And before they can even get a word in about, because there's a, there's a, um, what's it called? Like a strike going outside the Academy building, 500 VFX being like, this is ridiculous. We're getting treated unfairly. And as soon as they bring it up on stage, they cut the mic and play the music. And, and it's just like insane. Anyway, that's a whole rabbit hole but pay actors 20 30 million bucks yeah yeah, exactly well the the people who introduced them was the avengers cast (laughs) a combined total of a billion trillion gazillion revenue just off the film's box office (laughs) wild well jake unless you have something to add in our careers section this week um i guess i pretty much i got my my quest 2 down there yeah. Pretty exciting. I've been doing more tests with the RS1 inch, the 360 camera that I borrowed. And um, it's been good. I mean, it's interesting, because obviously you're, you're pretty well enveloped. 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 <laughs> you're very enveloped. I'm going to say that now in lenses. <laughs> I love, I do love my lenses. Now, this, um, I think it's Firewall. Free, uh, free what? Free well. Sorry, free well. They mm-hmm. go, they uh, go together with Insta Three Sixty to do ND filters for Three Sixty cameras, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. I didn't actually know that. So just so you are in the Three Sixty game, no, you should look them up and see if you can get ND filters because you're going to need them with a fixed aperture and you're shooting out in broad daylight. I had a lot. I had my shutter at like one five thousandth of a second to get a lot of the Damn. shots I did in the last week. But in all fairness, it is VR, mm-hmm. so. The motion blur, you can kind of get away with it. Smoother motion blur in a VR setting. Um, they don't have ND filters for this one-inch camera yet, which is a bit frustrating. I mean, like, yeah, the lenses are pretty bulbous, but, you know, you could definitely create, like, a glass case oh, for, sure. for this. I, I don't think it would be too difficult. Um, no, but I just did a lot of 
playing around with that on on my mini holiday last week. Did I yes. I did I send you the one where I was like holding the camera in a three sixty position? No, I, I just no. You sent me photos. I sent you the zipline yeah. one, which <laughs> maybe we'll get the VR camera on that. Yeah, you should <laughs> going down the ultimate going down the ocean. Yeah, well, they they won't they wouldn't let me in the moment, but I'm sure if we like organize something, you know, specific specific specifically for Battle of the K, I'm sure they would come up with something. But yeah, no, just that's that's what I've been doing career wise in the last week. Beautiful. You've well, been, you've been writing things. I was just so much writing. <laughs> Less fun. More talking now. I'm here for that. Good. It's time for us to move into our latest director's corner. And our film of the week. But Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're talking about John Carpenter's The Fang. Some say the world will end by fire. Others say it will end by ice. Now, somewhere in the Antarctic, the question is being settled forever. John Carpenter's The Thing. Coming this summer from Universal Pictures. In remote Antarctica, a group of American research scientists are disturbed at the base camp by a helicopter shooting at a sled dog. When they take in the dog, it brutally attacks both human beings and canines in the camp, and they discover that the beast can assume the shape of its victims. You just spoiled half the movie, yeah, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of spoilers. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't read that one last week, because... Um... That would have sucked to have known that. I mean, it was I, I, it was pretty, like... Obvious. It, it took about five seconds to be like, oh, I see what they're doing with this dog. It's a brilliant setup. This is the thing. This is the thing. I'm talking about Smile. Yeah. And everything's just so obvious. And I like that the film takes its time to be like, why is this Norwegian man trying to shoot this dog? Like, you spend a second trying to think if there's some sort of, like, reason for it. Without the natural, like, oh, there's a there's a supernatural element to this. The paranoia element to this. It all just sort of slowly festers in, much like The Thing does. Yes. Zeke, you've seen this film before. Yes, this is my second viewing. Ooh, what did you think about your second viewing? That's great. It's just great. <laughs> it's like, I feel like it's a... It's sort of, I mean, obviously it's a very grounded... It's a grounded alien, really. Mm. Um but I think it takes its time a little bit more than Alien does. I don't know. I feel like Alien turns more into an action film in its final... Sure. Which I guess this sort of does too, mm. turn into a bit more of an action. It goes from horror to like that action horror, so it builds. Yeah. Um, I think it's... What I like about this film more, I think, I, I think one, I think the special effects age better. Oh my lord, the visual effects! Um, not to say not, Alien not even doesn't... visual, just yeah, you're right, special effects, practical yeah. effects. Not to say Alien um, doesn't have bad special effects. It mm. does. It, it it has some really good moments in it, some great set pieces, but the latter parts of the film, I think, 
are a little dated and it becomes it's not as scary whereas this film i think holds its its horror and its fear a little mm. bit a little bit better which is probably a testament to the story being told now i really like alien but i like alien for its technical aspects its visual effects its its soundtrack mm. i think are its and it's and it's you know it's writing of a female uh, protagonist I, I think those are its strongest elements whereas this film i mean it's cool to see a a black guy make it to the end. Uh, yeah, they, the... they. I feel like they very. You get that one POV shot in the dog kennel, of it's going towards. And it's like, oh, here we go. First black guy's out, and he's like, no, no, he okay. He he burnt them. He did it just in time. Yeah, well done. <laughs> and it was, um, which you know is like subversion of of the stereotypical horror tropes. But, sure. Um, yeah, I think this is one of those films, it's, you know, it's really good to talk about this, because, you know, we've talked about Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and stuff, and I know that's Wes Craven, and, and obviously, mm. you know, that was the, sort of the OG John Carpenter film of, of, of this show, and they're, they're kind of cool, because they all fit in this catalogue of, of what really became the quintessential popcorn horror films, mm. with this, especially the, the, the use of practical, um, and special effects to create absolute horrific body horror and gore. Yeah, this is like Cronenberg level body horror, which I, I mean, I love that. I love. I was not expecting the film to go in that direction. And what I love is that have, I've never seen it before. Is all I've seen for the last, you know, many, many, many years is the poster of like some sort of, you know, guy in one of those like submarine tanker costumes. Mm. And it's like that is not the visual aesthetic at all of this film. Like it, it imbues like the you know the ice cold, blinding white sort of visuals, and uses that to to create its horrific aesthetic. And even like the white transitions and cross dissolves and things like that's all imbued in there. But the visual design of the creature, I mean, there is no consistent yeah. visual design, and that's the whole idea is that this is just a, a shape shifting monster that has no definitive. Look, I mean that the thing, you know, that name, this thing that we just we don't. It could be any body, or I mean, thing. We use it so commonly in the English language to describe something that we have no other more specified language to describe said thing. (laughs) Yeah, and I, you know, it's how interesting is particularly that in that you know that final climactic scene. You look at what is probably the closest thing to um, consolidating what the thing looks like. Mm. And all I'm thinking is, wow, I don't know if the Duffer brothers have cited influence. <laughs> oh, I'm um, pretty sure they have, actually. You, if you find their old PDF to sell Stranger Things. Um, it's, I mean, it's got huge parallels <laughs> to what's like the main monster in... The Demogorgon? Uh, yeah, the Demogorgon. Yeah, yeah. With the opening flower mouth. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, that stuff was incredible. Yeah, well, you go to that scene in the dog kettle when you finally see the monster in the dog shape literally open up, and that's why I say Cronenberg. It's got those fly vibes for sure. I was like, holy shit. Like, I was not... I didn't know what to expect from, you know, sort of this... I know there's like a body snatcher element to it of, you know, Pennywise the Clown, where it's like, that is always so unappealing to me, is this like horrific monster that can be anything because it almost feels kind of lazy to me this film completely and utterly subverted that for me like this film was just it's just so impeccably well made and so horrific because not only is it commenting on like the human drama of the paranoia that's like slowly spreading like a virus among the crew 
it's like an outpost you would mm-hmm. call it like a scientific outpost um which in it itself is so fascinating because you have you know this whole crew of men who are very capable very smart they're all very scientific and watching it i was like they are figuring this out very quickly compared to how some dumb horror protagonist are and they just can't figure out something that's so i remember i had this thought watching smile yeah. when the character makes a realization about how to deal with this curse and i'm sitting there being like i thought of this like 45 minutes ago like what are you on yeah. and in this film they're just straight on to like discovering the biology and doing the autopsies and, and learning about the virus and how that all works it is quite interesting that, and it's a, i think it's a really cool valid point you're bringing up that what makes this such a compelling, engaging horror is the mm-hmm. fact that, yeah, you've got this ensemble cast that do deduct things very quickly. Like, mm-hmm. we are actually seeing characters play to their strengths. And, and yep. we actually do see this in, in you know, I, I can bring it back to, you know, with Ridley Scott's Alien. Mm-hmm. The crew is actually quite competent. Like, right, they work out how to sort of hunt and if it's not for, in that situation, you know, we talk about with, like, Ash's turncoat nature mm. or his robotic nature that leads to sort of, basically, when they're, they're kind of on top of it, it actually ends up being its own, another obstacle. Yep. Um, or even, you know, even a more contemporary sense, in the first uh, It movie, yep. the kids work out pretty quickly, Pennywise. Like, mm. they understand, like, th- that something's awry and it's less, and we get, like, they all get one sort of, scary encounter with the, yeah. with the this inconceivable sort of object this monster mm. but then the second half of the film after the midpoint it's actually about hunting yes yes and and this perfectly ties into the discussion we had last week about don't worry darling which isn't a straight horror but that film had severe pacing issues because it's 95% mystery 5% rest of the movie yeah while you're right, this film and a lot of other great horrors, the characters are smart enough to figure out what is happening very quickly so that by the midpoint of the film, the goal and the objective is completely different. It's not about discovering what this thing is. It's about surviving what we already know it to be, which is, you know, I mean, a virus is the best way to describe it. Absolutely. I love the visual. Um, I forget, I guess, the doc's name, the one he does, like the autopsies and stuff. Um, he's seen the visual of what that insemination looks like you know, when it when it melds into an organism and then slowly becomes the shape of that same organism and indistinguishable from it. And how if it finds more, it's going to grow into this, like, Cronenberg, you know, multi-people melted together yeah. look. And that's when you get, like, you know, the melted body with the two faces split apart, which is just horrifying, by yeah, the look, way. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> the concept artists for this, like, they always say that the concept they, they artist for the alien was gross because <laughs> of the phallic nature, but yes, yes. this is just... I I was almost blown away. I think the one that gets me is the head spider. Oh, um, my God, yeah. Where it's like, how does someone think of that? It's just Is that so... the inspiration for the head spider from Toy Story? Probably will. <laughs> oh, Zeke. Oh, I'm not watching Toy Story again. <laughs> I always thought the head spider, the doll head spider thing is so creepy, Sid's. That so many must Sid's, be what it's based on. So many of Sid's toys were just, like, horrific to look at. Yeah. Like, actual nightmare fuel. Could easily be nightmare fuel in it if you changed the genre. Yes, exactly. Like, if they lean more into the horror The Chucky elements. Of that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and... I think it's that sort of like we're saying is 
is the best part about these hunter hunted sort of horrors and maybe even like you know we take like if we're going back to the carpenter realm like mm. why we kind of like the halloween reboot is mm. you know we we presented with characters some believe you know obviously like Jamie Lee Curtis's character who's scarred by Michael yeah but is prepared and then yes. the, the 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 definitely there are still like pro like it does neander a little bit the scientists sort of we we talked about like oh, the yeah. scientists I forgot about that yeah. plot is a bit odd and a create like an unnecessary obstacle but she's ready like yes. and when so when the showdown happens it feels more like he's still got the uh, like he's still the monster mm. but our protagonist our family of protagonists is not ill prepared they're mm. not lucky to survive or not in the sense that oh the right thing happens at the right time yeah, like in yeah. the more b-rated horrors it's no they're they're combating against it and they're putting up a fight. And what um, I think is so comparable with that to this film is, you know, the setting. Yeah. You know, they're in the middle of oh, nowhere. I mean, it's, uh, it's Antarctica, the Antarctica, yeah. yeah. But it's just, like, pure white. They sort of establish very on. There's, like, no one nearby. But the thing is, these are people... Not only are they scientists and they're quite smart... How are there no Australian characters, though? What's the deal with that? <laughs> it's because it's uh, the movie would have been over quick. Yeah. The Australians would have killed the monster and it would have been finished. Yeah. That, that's my excuse. That, that would be actually my legitimate difference because there's so <laughs> many... Even Kiwis. There's no Kiwis. Yeah. Like, it's the Antarctic. <laughs> it's like our end of the world. I know. We should be down there yeah. helping these guys. What's the go? It's like the end of Get Out. Yeah. The Australian pulls up and saves the day. <laughs> or at least witnesses the day yeah. being saved. But to that point, not only are these like smart scientists that understand biology and human nature and how these things work, but they've adapted to this intense, extreme climate that they're surrounded by and i think part of the commentary there is that as scientists they understand the climate which you know would can kill most people if they're not clothed properly or protected properly or fed properly they're going to die in Mm. this in this freezing cold and i think their knowledge is what prevents them from that that's their defense mechanism versus this alien that comes from the sky they have no idea what this and granted they learn a lot about it very quickly yeah but a lot of the disadvantages comes from them not knowing what the hell this thing even is or how to fight against it. And even the scene when he's sort of burning all of the blood samples to sort of see the reaction. And I guess that's to do, correct me if I'm wrong, if that's to do with the fact that the monster's blood samples is like a physical entity that the monster would feel pain with that. As opposed, I would, yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, I think that was the idea behind that. Because blood, I think, is the way it transfers. Right, yeah. Well, that, that, it's, it's supposed liquid form is still something yeah. that feels and, and, and is related yeah. to its body, um, which is very smart for them to have figured out. But on the flip, on the flip side, on the flip slide, bro, <laughs> they don't know if that's definitively working. Because at the end of the day, the monster's just kind of toying with all of them. I think th- there's this sort of hope between the crew that they are, like, on the winning side, or that, they, you know, they're isolating enough, or they're not cross-contaminating yeah. their, like, devices and, and whatever they're touching. But there's very few points in the film where, as an audience member, I'm just like, oh, no, they're screwed. <laughs> because this this thing is so... Uh, like, we don't know anything about it. That's what's so scary. And I usually find that, like I said... That doesn't usually scare me, but this film it embodies that in such a way where it's like, this is terrifying. 
Yeah. Because it creates that human emotion of paranoia. And then that's how the film starts with the helicopter. The guy's trying to snipe a dog because, yeah, it's a it's a monster. Uh, as an audience, we're, trying, we're learning that quite slowly. But it's the cycle of paranoia that, that continues. Now, I don't know if it's too early to jump into the ending. I mean, it's sort of a perfect segue no. into the ending. But you have two characters left that essentially just say, let's wait this out. There's really, at this point, there's no definitive way to, to figure this Blaise, out. Base is blown up. Yep. Um, they're in the wreckages of of what once was. <laughs> yeah, like their but they're both outpost. Yeah. They both just sort of elect to wait it out almost. Mm. So it was this weird sort of tense standoff between the two characters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a standoff between two very tired and exhausted characters who I think at that point almost just don't care anymore no at this point there's two of them one of them is very likely the monster and if not there's still that that sign of that cyclical paranoia that even if even if the monster was killed they're probably so paranoid they're going to kill each other anyway that's sort of my takeaway from from the ending it's a very powerful ending yeah so i I, and it's and it's a great ending Mm. because it it leads to a lot of like fan speculation about Mm. what happens and it's that whole, I think there's a moment when McCready hands over a drink. Right. And the inferral is that it's got gasoline in it, mm. um, <laughs> which would help test if the monster is, um, I'm going to get the other character's yeah, name. Sort of reacting to it. So I'm just going to get it up. Just get it up, boy. Keith, oh, it's Keith David. Oh, my God. I forgot. It's Keith David. <laughs> This is like the we OG love, Keith. We love, we love OG, Keith David. The OG Keith David film. The voice is all you need. Yeah. That's all you need is his voice. <laughs> and Kurt Russell, when I mentioned this, this, this is their, this is this is Kurt Russell's like breakout film. Right, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And and him and John Carpenter have done a lot of films together. I didn't realize that. But I I had that instinct reaction when I I mentioned this film to my mum who had seen it and is, was just repulsed by it. Um, but is also not really a huge fan of sci-fi. That's another element of it. But she asked, like, oh, the, the Kurt Russell film. And my instant reaction was, oh, that must be the remake that he was in. It's like, no, 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 no. This was it. 1982, Kurt Russell. Yeah. That was a nice little surprise for me. Yeah, so, and and it's that moment where he hands it over and they, they're suggesting that, yeah, there's, like, petroleum mm. gasoline in the, in the flask. Oh, dearest. And it's sort of a way of working out which one of them is the thing because mm. that would react to it. And I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, Very clever characters. Yeah. It's just <laughs> such a good ending. The, um, the, it's very early when Kurt Russell, he's playing the computer chess game. And this is actually our introduction to his character when he's like, ah, oh, you're losing it. He's like so cocky in his own ability to beat it. But then the machine wins. And he sort of pours a liquid in there, and he's like, ah, you cheater. I'm trying to think what the commentary on that is, because the film otherwise doesn't really comment on technology so much. So I'm wondering what the purpose of that scene and that character Where he loses to the... To the, the, the chess game, yeah. I think it's a character that doesn't like to lose, maybe? or Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting... It'd be an interesting one to sort of revisit and have a... Have a thought about because I made I made a note of that I was like okay that's interesting there's like that sort of technological aspect to it and I was like okay well the the exorcist you know a lot of religion versus technology 
ideology shifting yeah. and, and combating in that film. So I was like, maybe there's a little bit of a technological thing in this film as well. But otherwise, no, I, the I film think it's a very really primordial nature film. I think yeah. it's about, like I said, it's, it's about paranoia and... Um, I guess so, the accusation of cheating, I guess there's something there. Like it's said as a joke, it's a funny moment, but maybe that does say something about the inane incapability of, of accepting loss. Uh, like you said, like it's a human sort of emotion or basic um, survivalist notion that we can't get rid of. Yeah. I don't know. I might be digging too much into it. Well, it could be the amount of, like you said, it's this these characters that kind of believe that they're in control. Like, they mm. actually... It's an interesting notion, this film, collectively, because though it's a horror film, these characters are reasonably level-headed. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And as compared to, you know, if you, a couple of years later, you see Predator, and it's like, these are these big, bulky, or even aliens, where yeah. you've got, like these characters that fear, or even in, in the original Alien, where, you know, when we see the Xenomorph when it's fully... these This crew is in fear, mm-hmm. and only does, like... And Ripley's still fearful, but survives, whereas this crew is incredibly calm and collected throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And maybe it's that arrogance, that cockiness, like you said, like they think, like, oh, they're working things out and people are dropping around them. Yeah. But it's almost like you said, it's that belief, and maybe that's an arrogance thing. Maybe it's like they don't, they really. It's almost like seeing its own hubris, like right, or yeah. seeing their own human. They are only human, and actually, them being biological is their their downfall. Yeah. Um, which I thought they were going to make a commentary on that as well. Is that you know, if this if this thing is replicating perfectly the biology. First off, the, the sort of the personality and the, and the brain function and that whole aspect. They kind of skip over that, but it's obviously implied that they take on the character traits and the me- especially the memory, which is interesting because um, the monster destroys the blood samples almost immediately after mm. they say they're going to do that comparison. So the only way the monster would be able to know that is to inject the memory of, of the, the, the host that it's like grappled onto. So they kind of skip over that, but it's very implied very quickly that this thing is taking over the personality and the memory and the mind of these characters as well. But that the biology, the failures of human biology, which there are, I mean, you know, obviously humans have very intricate, delicate structures to their Mm. body and, and, you know, not just the skeleton structure, but just how all our organs and livers and everything is all connected and talking to each other so we operate the way that we do. But ultimately, human beings are very feeble things. You know, it, it takes very little for us to be, you know, yeah. brutally murdered sometimes. You know, just like sharp objects stabbing through our skin, hitting certain... I don't want to get too graphic, but, you know, the human body is, you know, it's a wonderful thing, but it's also a very flimsy, easily destroyed thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe there would be a twist at the end where the mo- the monster or the thing... Is downfall is its replication of the human body, and that these scientists would know about these weaknesses. But, and I don't think it needed to do any of that. I think it's more well, interesting that they just straight up lose. Is it so? My my thing is right. Is it said that it comes from space? Is that implied that it comes from space? This this beast. I this think the only real concrete evidence 
is, and let me know, did you watch this on Stan? No, I've got a DVD. You, no, you got a DVD, okay. Does it open with a space scene? Where you're in space, you see the ship fly past the planet? Mm, I can't recall that, no. Okay. Yeah, it's they've got the opening credits, and then it sort of cross-dissolves to all... Let me just... Okay, there you go. To all the stars in the sky. And I remember writing down, I could have swore to God this was a Star Wars, like, homage. Because it opens exactly like... Well, Star Wars would open without the opening crawl, of course. You're just in space. And then the ship goes past, and then it cuts to sort of a crooked angle of the planet, I'm guessing Earth, as the ship flies next to it. Which I was actually going to ask you if that was even necessary, but now I'm starting to wonder if that's even in every cut of the film, which would bother me if it wasn't. Just no, putting it out there. definitely a space. Yeah, you see, you see what I'm describing now? Mm, yeah, the, the space ship. Yeah, see that? Yeah, group? and that's, that's definitely the spaceship that they find converted in the ice. Because I think that's the idea, is that it's it that was it flying, and then we time jump 100,000 years in the future... Which I think the actual stand right up says a hundred thousand. I mean, that's a number that they just randomly threw out there. I guess that's yeah, because there's like, no concrete. Yeah, I guess that's canon according to the write up. But yeah, bloody Norwegians—they ruin everything. Why do they have to dig these guys up? Yeah, <laughs> bloody Norwegians. Yeah, so that mate. must have been. That must have been in it. I must have just missed it. Yeah, that that's fair enough. If it's not in every cut, I generally thought they could have got away with not showing that. That spaceship? Yeah. Cause I agree. Because like you said, there's an ambu- ambiguity to whether it actually is from space. I would have liked it more if it actually did come from Earth. Or yeah, that like we weren't 100% sure where it came from. Yeah. I would have too. Because then, you, then you're playing more into that sort of these men that think they're the masters of this environment. Yeah. Because they've become hardened and they're, they're, they're smart and their education. And it comes mm-hmm. back to that hubris concept where it's like, oh... Yes, you thought you were the... It's that top of the food chain thing. Yeah. It's like taking the big muscly men out into the Amazon like, and watching a predator hunt these guys who think they're like hot stuff. And Mm. Cameron does that really well with what he's doing with Predator, but it's sort of like... It's an interesting notion, yeah. That could be easily the case of um, maybe a studio head being like, well, you've got to be more explicit. Because it does feel a little bit Mm. janky, like just even watching that brief segment there yeah like, like it doesn't feel like it's come from the same movie almost no it doesn't yeah um, you might be honest because it is universal which I, yeah. is probably one of the bigger companies he would have worked with at this time and when you think about it you take that out and you keep the movie completely set in antarctica yeah it just starts on the helicopter yeah. which your log line that you read earlier in the show implies that that's how the movie starts yeah. it doesn't it starts with a spaceship yeah, I'm going to have to go and watch my uh, DVD. I don't remember seeing a spaceship. Interesting. So. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Bit extra. If some cuts. Because if there was a cut, if not, I would always suggest that you would take that out because you don't need it. Yeah. Because it answers it, too many questions it, almost. Well, it actually takes the movie from a higher order thinking to something a little bit more simplish, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to Google really quickly if if this is a scene that was actually cut in certain versions of the film. Post-release, performance, home media, other media, thematic analysis. I would love to go for the thematic analysis because, yeah, there's obviously the forefront stuff of um, paranoia, which I think is very obvious. Again, they don't even use the word paranoia in the film, I don't think, so 
you know, it's got that extra leg up on modern horror films like like Smile, for example. Um, this is very interesting. The lack of information about the film's special effects drew the attention film exhibitors in early 1982. They wanted reassurance that the film was a first-rate production capable of attracting audiences. Cohen and Frost, Froster? Foster with a specially employed editor in Universal's archive of music put together a 20-minute showreel emphasizing action and suspense. These available footage, including alternate extended scenes not in the finished film, not avoided, uh, but avoided revealing the special effects as much as possible. That's interesting. It's not giving me too much about this spaceship scene and if it was cut or not. Yeah. But I, I'm kind of with you in the sense that I might have preferred it to not have been included in the final release of the film. Yeah, because it doesn't need to be there. I mean, a spaceship found in the ice, that's that's fine. Yeah, um, and then even then, you could have all these theories about... You've got an ambiguous ending. Yeah. Why not have an ambiguous beginning? Mm-hmm. Or the fact that this spaceship they found... You know, for a film that's seemingly otherwise very grounded in terms of the people that were following the world were in other than this monster, yeah, which is purposefully I mean, very, like, unfamiliar, we probably would have been questioning, like, oh, is that really a spaceship? Is that something the Russians or the Norwegians made? I was going to keep blaming the Norwegians for everything. You're all thinking against Norwegians. You know, I'm Norwegian. Well, look, what, look what they did, Zeke. <laughs> look, they let this no- thing out. Yeah. How could you? I'm either Norwegian or Danish. I've still never worked it out. Um, Jake, do you have anything not, else you'd like to You're not allowed to be offended yet, then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we could start We could start talking about our highlight scenes because I think what I love about, uh, and I'll mention this in terms of the film as a whole package, is as much as I love the Cronenberg level of like body horror in this film, and we already talked about you know, the melt, the melted two faces and, you know, the the dog transformation, which is just horrific. I love the, obviously, the blood effects that are coming out from, like, under blankets and stuff that it, it, it looks like blood, but there's something about it that does speak to the fact that it is sort of this material thing that, that this, I keep using the word the thing, but that, that's what's so brilliant about the title as well. But also the body that's, like, frozen or crystallized and the crystallized blood that's come from like mm. the ripped arm. I thought that was a really cool design. But the fact of the matter is the body horror actually lessens throughout the film. Because like you said, the film's midpoint, you've got a whole different set of driving questions and tension in that it's not about the mystery so much as it is about, you know, the the, the group within them and who's trustworthy and who's not, who's already been yeah. captured. Um, that it, it becomes a much more human drama without the body horror. The body horror comes... But there's a large portion of this film after the midpoint where there is no body horror. It's just people being upset at each other. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's a tough film to pinpoint a particular scene. Sure. Oh my god, yeah. Um, because I'll it's... base my highlight scene on yours because yeah, it'll be I'm, one of a few. I'm gonna have to just. I'm. I'm probably gonna settle with. I do like the final sequence where they've lodged this plan to kind of grab all the dynamite they've been using for, Mm. and sort of go to this sort of nest. Um, I think we even even really touch on how good some of the production design is. Oh my God. It's fantastic. They really do use every square meter of this, uh, (laughs) this base. Um, and I think that that sequence is pretty good. I think we're down to, I think the last three characters at this point and, yeah, or at least the three that are down there at that moment. Yeah, yeah. and then two of them are eaten. 
<laughs> but and, what I love about that scene as well is is you have that moment where he's he's like, oh, how's it going? And he turns around and nobody's there. I very rarely see that scene done from the other perspective where we see what happens to all these people before we get that moment. Usually the camera would rest on Kurt Russell and then we, the audience, are just as surprised as he is that everyone else has disappeared. I like that we see it from the other side. That's pretty nifty. Yes, the are you effing kidding me is <laughs> still fantastic. That's excellent. I guess to to top up with that, because for me, it's just any of like the graphic body horror sequences are just phenomenal. Like When they're all tied to the chair and they finally get that one blood dose that reacts, and now they're all tied to the monster that's like literally levitating up. Um, that's just disgusting in the best way. Yep. It probably has to go to the dog kettle because that's really is your introduction to the ca- the capabilities of this monster. It's the first time I watched it, knowing to what extent we're gonna be shape shifting. Because mm-hmm. I, I knew it was a shape shifting monster. The film's like logline kind of spoils that. But I was like, oh okay, well it's it's gonna just turn into human beings, and I, I didn't realize how uh, special effects heavy. The, the body stuff was going to well, be. The dog at the and end. The dog. Oh, yeah. yeah the one at the end's cool as well. Well, that implies that there's been a version of the monster there the entire time where the dog wasn't destroyed. Because that's my understanding. Is like, yeah, they've constantly destroyed variations of this monster. They've burnt it to death. Mm-hmm. But because there's always like one, you know, one atom of it left somewhere else. And I guess the, impl- the implementation is that Whoever was in that room, in my little fun fact at the start, um, is the person that may have had part of the thing taken over it the entire duration of the film. But I'll, it's one of those things I'll have to watch it very carefully again to see if there see, are clues. For see who's, if you can piece together who it is. Yeah, who and, and when they're taken. But the fact that it makes you want to rewatch it is a testament to oh the my, film. Yeah, oh my God. Because there is that aspect of... I'm going to say it again. I keep, I keep being surprised at how well the... The monster can shapeshift into anything it wants to. Like that, I can't believe that that works in this film for me. Well, it didn't work in its film that came out 30 years after it. Oh, no, the the 2011 remake, (laughs) which I think is meant to be a prequel. I think it has like a a twist ending that turns out to be a lead into this film. I mean, that's what I read somewhere. Cool. (laughs) Cool. Exciting. No, you you can't remake this film. Yeah. Why would you even try? Well, as we've said before, the thing is currently out on Stan. Mmm. Exciting. You got it on DVD. I do. I gotta buy it on Blu-ray, 4K, whatever. This may be Zeke, before we move on. Next to The Exorcist, this may be like top three horror films of all time for me. I buy into the hype. This was outstanding. It's better than Halloween. Oh my god. Easily. Yeah. Easily. I said it last week. I was like, Halloween, I'm kind of a little I've seen it a few times, we did it on the podcast. I I get its importance to low-budget horror filmmaking and like a testament to what you can do with no money. But this film, and obviously, I mean, what what was the budget on this film? $15 million, so it obviously has a lot more money to work with. But it's utilizing that production design and, and the design of the creatures and the, mm. the makeup and, and all of those. It's utilizing those so well that John Carpenter, with money, or you know, at least the $15 million he had here adjusted for inflation really speaks to me. More, more so than Halloween, which I appreciate, but we've done that episode. You can go listen to the Halloween episode. Yeah, no worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas 
near us. Near us? Near us. Oh, my God. A store near you. Yeah. Coming to binge. Well, I should clarify. I must have had a, a weird binge document because all of these came out in the last couple of weeks and okay. I just did not mention any of them. So they're all out right now as I'm speaking. Films like Little Women, After Yang, King Richard, uh, House of Hammer, which is a documentary on the allegations against Army Hammer. Uh, those are all out right now. And I'm definitely keen to, to see some of these because I still haven't seen After Yang or King Richard. I have not seen King Richard yet, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not too inclined considering <laughs> the old slap... What, 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 what am I thinking? Slapgate. Let's call it Slapgate. <laughs> I'm shocked it wasn't called Slapgate, but I'm calling it Slapgate. Coming to Netflix, you have The Curse of Bridge Hollow, which is a man and his daughter team up to save their town from an ancient spirit which causes Halloween declarations to come to life. Ooh, Ooh, baby. That should be coming to Disney+. Plus. Yeah, this must be wrong because that's coming to Netflix. That sounds like a sort of a family-friendly, kooky Halloween film. And then what is coming to Disney+, Plus is a much more gritty, horrifying-looking film called Grim Cuddy, which sees an internet meme cause terror amongst the neighborhood, and it's up to a teen girl and her little brother to stop the meme from spreading. Okay, that sounds like a joke, but the trailer is, like, deadly serious. Like, taking it very seriously, dark colors, scary jump scares, all of that jazz. I'm a little surprised it's coming to Disney+. Plus, But it is. As well as Rosaline, which sees Caitlin Dever play Juliet's jealous cousin in the comedic retelling of the Romeo and Juliet story. That's fun. We like Caitlin Dever on the show. Mm. We don't see enough of her. Now, coming to cinemas. Specifically playing at Luna this week, we have A Taste of Hunger, which is a power couple in the Danish gourmet scene, sacrifice everything to achieve the highest possible accolade in their field. you got Mona Lisa and the Blood Moon, a subversive horror comedy about a girl with unusual powers breaking out of an escape asylum and into New Orleans. That's kind of got like that, you know, neon lit sort of teen angst thing going on. Okay. It seems fun. Okay. It seems good. It's got that sort of edgy voice to it, I suppose. Uh, the Night of the Twelfth, is a French detective film, or story, that sees Johan Vives and his team become obsessed with the murder of Jan Clara. It's kind of, I guess, like a French version of Memories of Murder or something, or, okay. or Seven. Or I haven't seen the trailer, but that, that gives me a serious vibe. That right But less dropkicks. Less dropkicks. <laughs> and coming to Palace, you also have the Australian documentary How to Thrive, which sees a positive uh, psychotherapist... Psychotherapist? Physiotherapist. I probably wrote the wrong one. Psychotherapist takes seven different people on a life-changing journey. And uh, they're also doing re-screenings for Love, Simon on Tuesday the 11th. And, ah, oh, we should have waited a week, Zeke. The Thing, playing oh. this Friday the 14th at Palace. That'd we, be pretty cool to see. We messed up. On the big screen. I know. Instead, we're going to be watching something else on the big screen. <gasps> In fact, could be next week's film, Zeke. But, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> next week on the show, Zeke. We're watching Halloween Ends.
Francisco. The saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode come to a spine-chilling climax in this final installment. Why did they have to say climax? They could have said showdown or face-up. Why did they have to use the word climax? I just, I don't get it. Zeke, have you seen... So, we've both obviously seen Halloween 2018, Mm -hmm. which we both really, really like. I think we saw that just before we started the podcast, and we never actually did an episode on it. Yes. Now, I believe the second one is called Halloween Kills. That came out last year. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that either, and I heard it was pretty bad in comparison. Currently sitting on 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. Letterboxd, 2.6 out of 5. Yeah, no. That's not not good, Jen. That's not good. But we have high hopes for this third, third one in the trilogy, and I'm very excited because we're actually bringing a special guest on. He's a big fan of Halloween, has made some horror films himself. One even on Prime video, which is very exciting. We do like our Prime. We've got Zach Inglez coming onto the show next week. Very exciting. And um, So we're going to go catch this film this week. Yes. The Halloween ends, and maybe the light as well. Who knows? I saw the light three years ago when it first played at Luna. Really? Yeah, and yeah, um, then that came that. to Vimeo. Oh, I would have mentioned it on the podcast. Oh, I should have figured that out. Oh, well, if you just go to an episode from October 2019, so that would have been like episode like 45 for us mm. around that area. That, that's what I'm guessing. Oh, a bit, maybe a bit earlier than that. Oh, no, that was October. No, it's also on Prime. Hmm? It's on Prime. There you go. Perfect. So you should, all, you should all watch that film before he comes on the show next week. When we talk about Halloween ends, I'm very excited. We have a Prime Week. Prime, 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 oh Prime. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Halloween Ends. Prime of my